0: Well, last week, uh, we uh, had uh, a text that was, uh, frankly, fairly heavy. Uh, the main idea that we saw last week was God's word to his people, Israel. And the word was, Israel, you are dead. Uh, you are, you've already died, spiritually speaking. Uh, you are in the grave. And uh, we spent a lot of time <clears throat> looking at the causes of death, looking at the, the pride, the idolatry, the sin, the, the consequences, the effects of that death. And by the end of it, we were in a, in a place of, um, of, of darkness and despair, which would mirror the, the place of the people. And so at the very end, we looked ahead, uh, recognizing we can't end on this, this level of, of kind of hopelessness. And so we peeked ahead to our text for this week and found the, the hope that God brings beyond, uh, beyond the grave. And so we're going to read uh, this text today. Uh, which does begin with a a glimmer of life, but I I will tell you that there is still a lot of darkness in our text today. And so it's going to take some time for us to to navigate through and see the promises that God has for us in here. But let's begin. Uh, Hosea chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 4. Here is God's word to us this morning. But I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, you know no God but me. And besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, and as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, The little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. And we pause there. End of chapter 13. Now, there is a clear answer to the problem from last week in this text. The the weight, the problem last week is that Israel's people were dead spiritually. That's what God had said. And yet here, there is a promise of hope. And so, we're going to begin with the, the, the main point. Uh, from this text, which we find just in, really in one verse, but the main point, the abiding hope, which is this, that God promises to save us from death. God promises to save us, to save his people from death. And the one verse where we see this clearly is, is verse 14, just kind of partway through, where God says to his people, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? That. The clear promise here is that God is going to do an amazing thing. That he is going to somehow bring them past the point of death, past the point of, of Sheol, which is, uh, in Hebrews, is the grave. And this is a promise that we see not just here in Hosea, but that we see throughout the Old Testament. This is what God has been, has been saying to his people in, in a bunch of different ways. Here's just two examples. Uh, Psalm 34, verses 21 and 22, the psalmist writes, Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Clearly, hope. Clearly, be in life, in, in, a, in a life that is expansive, that there will not be condemnation. And look at Psalm 109, verse 30. With my mouth, I will great, give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. And notice there, we're talking about a salvation that isn't just to do with the immediate circumstances. Lots of times, the psalmist are writing, David is writing, look, my enemies surround me. There's, there's a prayer to God to help me in this moment. But here we see it's not just sort of for the superficial, physical life. It's, it's for eternal life. He saves him from those who condemn his soul to death. And that's the same thing we see in our, in our text today, that, that we could be... Uh, redeemed from death, that we could be uh, uh, saved from Sheol, which is the grave, the sense of the, of the afterlife. There is also in our text a reference to the saving work of God that the people have already known. Uh, the Exodus looms large in the minds of God's people uh, throughout the whole Bible, really. That is the, the moment where, where what's on display is the, the saving power of God. And so if you go back to verse four, the very first verse, God reminds them, I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, you know no God but me. And besides me, there is no savior. Again, there God is sort of combining a sense of uh, immediate salvation, right? They were in slavery to Egypt. He saved them from that. But also it was a, it was a picture of the, the greater salvation that will come. The spiritual help that we look back to. We talk about an exodus from slavery to sin. Again, by the, by the power of God. And the language that is in verse 14, the ransom. Right? that a price is gonna be paid so that people would be set free from the grave. Redemption means to reclaim and restore. All of this language, super hopeful, filled with promise, filled with a, a sense that there is somehow out of this, this pit where we are in. The problem, of course, is that it's not really clear how this would happen. And if you put yourself in the place of the Israelites, uh, these questions that God asks there was really only one way to answer them. Like when God says, "Here, O oh death, where are your plagues? O oh Sheol, where is your sting?" For the people at the time, the, the only real answer they could give is, "Well, I mean, it's everywhere. The plague of death is is everywhere I look." I mean, last week we we saw the just how how low the people of God had gone in terms of their moral decay. They had gone to the place of actually sacrificing their children. This was a culture of death, much like our own. This was a culture of corruption. This was a culture where they felt the sting of Sheol, that the grave, hell itself, they looked around, saw the idolatry, saw the oppression. It would be difficult for the people to answer those questions in any way apart from it's, it's kind of everywhere, God. Like, I mean, I see here that you're promising to bring help but really, if you look at, at this text in full, uh, it's hard to see exactly how this hope will come to be. I, I mean, even just if you look, count the verses, there's, there's one verse clearly and verse four as well that brings hope, but the rest of it, so another 10 verses is a lot of darkness, a lot of judgment, a lot of despair for the, the people of God. And so we're left wondering, well, how, how exactly could this happen? It's not like, we find here a, a glaring beacon of light, of hope, and that everyone's just like, oh, yes, Lord. Yes, I know everything's gonna be fine. They were probably hearing it with a sense of, I'm not sure how this is gonna happen. And I think it's good for us to step into that place because I think that's often the case for us, that we might know the promises of God, that, that we might have read or, or heard or experienced Uh, The promises that God has for us, even those of us already in Christ. And yet the truth is that it's tough for us to see how that actually could happen when we look around at our lives. So what I want to do before we look at the hope is to recognize uh, the the challenges that existed for this hope to, to come to fruition. So the first point is that God promises to save us from death and he does. But the second point is that there are many obstacles that stand in the way for the people at the time. And these obstacles are the same obstacles that we struggle with in terms of receiving the promises of God. So we're going to look at them. There's, I think, at least three main ones that we see here in this text. And the first I'm going to point out is that we as human beings, we have spiritually dead hearts. Our own hearts are part of the problem when it comes to actually receiving the promises of God. And here we have laid out a bunch of different examples. For for example, uh, verses 5 and 6. Here we see the prideful human heart, which we've seen before, but it's worth looking at again. Verse 5, God says, It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, but when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So this is a reference to God's people Remember, in the land of drought, in the wilderness, God was caring for them. This is the 40 years where they were, because of their sin, because of their lack of faith, God sent them out into the wilderness, and there, they were completely reliant on God. I mean, there's nothing, right? No food, no water. They had to miraculously strike a rock. Water would come forth. Food was falling from the sky. They knew that, that it was from God, that everything that they needed was from him, completely reliant. But then, then God led them into the promised land a land flowing with milk and honey. And when they were there, man, there's pomegranates, there's grapes everywhere you look. Their bellies were full. And notice the word therefore. That's interesting. Therefore, meaning there's a connection. Because of the hardness of their hearts, the natural result, the way that they started to think was, man, this is great. This is how I thought it would go. Right? We're the Israelites. We're God's people. This is going to be fine. We got this. They they didn't deny God, like they said, we're no longer God's people, but they forgot him. In their day-to-day lives, in their minds, in their hearts, they had an attitude which was one of self-reliance. Why? Because they were always full. It's easy to be self-reliant when you can just go out, the crops are growing, the economy's doing well, which it was at the time in Israel. In fact, last week we saw this, this great line, verse 8 of chapter 12. Ephraim said, Ah, but I'm rich, I have found wealth for myself. That was the attitude of the people. Because things were going well, they forgot the Lord. And I, I mean, we know that's familiar, don't we? The prosperity that we pray for, that we hope for, that we're working for can often be lethal when it comes to our faith because we don't need God anymore, right? We know we need him in some deep sort of place, but when we get up in the morning, what we know is that We have hands that are able to work. We have a mind that's able to think. We have a job. We have all these these mechanisms, these things that we can do to make sure our bellies are full, our family's bellies are full, and so we we aren't really relying on the Lord. And that's a huge obstacle in terms of actually receiving the promises of God. Right, that's the problem. The problem is that we take a little bit of the good that God has for us, right? The material blessing provision, and we just run with it. This is great. Thanks, thanks God's great. He's saying, I have more for you. We're fine. We got it. And then we miss the greater blessings of God. It's a huge obstacle, our pride. But more than pride, the the dead human heart is also stubborn. Look at verses 10 and 11. Uh, This here is a reference to uh, when the people of God uh, demanded a king. I'm not sure if you remember that. This was before Hosea. Uh, They had prophets. They had judges. And the people were like, you know what we really need is a king. They looked around, all the other nations had kings, right? A king would be great. You could see him, you could follow him. It would be easy to kind of have a leader. That's what we want. Look at how God speaks about the kings that they demanded. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers? Those of whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. The way that the people asked for a king, was not asking. It was, it was insistent. It was stubborn. Because Samuel, the prophet, said to them, look, you guys don't really want a king. You know what's gonna happen, right? The king's gonna rule over you in an oppressive way. He's gonna tax you. He's gonna take your, your young men and bring them off to war. He's gonna, it's not gonna go well. And they said, we, we want a king. They demanded a king. Finally, God said, fine, give them a king. And now look how he mocks them. Because he knows, they know where it went. He's basically saying, so how did it go? How's that king working out for you? Did that go well? Is that what you hoped would happen? With the king, the prince that you demanded? They, they know what is true, that every single king they had had times of unfaithfulness. Most of them led people farther away from God. It did not work out to be a blessing for the people. They were stubbornly insistent upon something they, they felt would be good. And that too is something that should be very familiar to us. Aren't there times in our lives where we have just been in prayer, frustrated? God, why aren't you giving me this thing? God, it's so clear. You say you love me? This is what I I need. Why are you delaying? Bring bring this to me, Lord. Show me your love. And then we get it, and then it, it goes horribly wrong. In our stubbornness, in our pride, we actually hinder the real blessings that God wants to bring into our lives. The people did. He was their king. He was about to shower them with, with blessings they couldn't even foresee, and yet they cut themselves off. They put someone in between. It hindered the promises and the blessings of God, and we, we do the same thing. But it's not just that the people were prideful. And not just they were stubborn. They are also foolish. They're, they're hard, dead, hearts. There's a foolishness there. Look at verses 12 and 13. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I find this imagery fascinating, right? It's such a compelling picture. It's depicting Israel as an unborn child who is resisting his own birth. And, and the description, this is an unwise son. Why? Because obviously, if it's the time to be born, you should be born. Especially in that day, there was no cesarean sections. To resist birth meant that you were clinging to death. God is saying to his people, look, I, I want a life for you, a renewal, a spiritual life for you, and you're clinging to, to the old way of life. You're gonna, you're gonna die spiritually rather than allow me to work in your life foolish. Do you, do you not see what I have for you? Do you not remember who I am? And that same foolishness marks us, does it not, in our sin? That we ignore, we, we turn a blind eye or an, we're unwilling to, to allow God to move in the ways that he's trying to move in our lives. We resist the conviction of the spirit. We resist the opportunities uh, to step out in faith for all, all sorts of reasons, right? I, we're, we're scared, we're anxious. We just, we aren't sure that God is actually gonna, gonna be there if we, if we do this thing. Maybe we, do, we wanna cling to the sin that we've enjoyed, whatever it is. We're foolishly resisting the, the, the powerful spiritual life that God has for us. And that too, just think of all the ways that hinders the promises of God, the obstacle. We, we are the obstacle to what God wants to do to the promises he has, to the blessing, to the hope. But it's not just our own hearts that are the problem. It's also the consequences of all of our sin. And we see this in the text because, uh, remember, he's speaking to Israel, and the, the prophecies to Israel have by and large been ones of warning, right? The words from God of like, look, there, there are, Assyria is marshaling their troops, If if you guys don't get your act together, if you don't repent and turn to the Lord, you are going to be overtaken. There are consequences to turning your backs on God. He's not going to just allow this forever. And so verses 15 and 16 is a picture of those consequences. It says, though he may flourish among his brothers, that's Israel, even though things seem to be going well, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come. And that's where Assyria comes from, from the east, rising from the wilderness. And here are the consequences. Here's what happens his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury from every precious thing. That's what literally happened. When Israel was conquered, the, the treasury, the, the, the gold, all of the valuable things were pillaged, taken from Israel. They were left bankrupt, left empty, and it goes on. Samaria, that's same, word, uh, same meaning, Israel, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. The little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Horrific imagery, but accurate imagery when it comes to a nation invading another nation. When there is war, there is death, there is cruelty. And that's that's what happened to Israel. Again, this is reminding them there will be consequences for your sin. And this is what is an obstacle for them. God, how can God bring life and blessing when they have their backs turned to God going headlong towards the consequences of sin that are coming for them? It gets in the way and the same thing for us. We want God to bless every area of our lives and yet we persist in our sin. We allow relationships to fracture, people to get hurt as we refuse to humble ourselves and follow in the ways of God. The consequences for our lives and for our in, internal life, the sense of sense of shame, sense of guilt, all of that inhibits the promises that God wants to bring. So we have dead hearts. There are consequences for sin, but there is an even a greater obstacle to the blessings of God, and that is God Himself we see here depicted in our passage a vivid, horrifying picture of the wrath of God. That God is wrathful towards those who are in sin. And we see this in verses seven to to nine. Look at how God depicts himself. He says, so I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. I'm not sure about you, but one of the challenges I have with with reading this kind of thing is that when I think of bears and leopards um, and lions, fear does not immediately grip my heart. Because the last time I saw those animals was at the zoo, and they were super cute. And there was a big pane of glass, and they would come up to the glass, and they would kind of nuzzle, and I thought, these are great. And then I went to the gift shop and bought a little stuffed lion for my kids, and so the association we have with these kinds of animals is is not immediately fear, not immediately ferocity, right? Because they're so domesticated in a sense, but for the people back then, that would not have been their association. They would have walked through the wilderness in fear of coming upon one one of these animals. And so the, the right mindset we should have is of a, as an actual bear attack. The closest I've been uh, is, to, uh, is the movie The Revenant, which is an intense movie, so I'd uh, be careful but it. It's about a fur trapper back in like the 1800s, Leonardo DiCaprio, and uh, there's this scene where he's walking through the woods, and uh, he's all like grizzled up, right? He's, he's got his rifle, and he comes upon these bear cubs. And as soon as he sees the bear cubs... He, he stiffens, and he's, autumn, he's on high alert because he knows what this means. Where there are bear cubs, there must be a mother bear. And so he gets his rifle up right away, he cocks it, he, he's ready. And he's kind of inching forward, shoulder checking right, every, every few seconds. And the way they film it is they kind of wrap around him from the front. And, and when he come around over his shoulder, you see over his shoulder the, the mother bear. That he doesn't see yet. And she's just bounding towards him. And he turns just in, and she hammers him. And what, what comes next is a horrifying scene of a bear attack. I don't know how they filmed it. I hope it wasn't with a real bear. Because he gets torn to shreds. It's, it's vicious. It's terrifying. There, there seems to be no escape from this creature that is far superior to him in every way. Stronger. More ferocious. And, and literally tears him apart as is being described here and the association that God is meaning for us to make is that that is his disposition towards a sinful human being why not because he's some you know wild and crazy animal that can't control himself because he is a holy god he is a righteous judge and because we are opposing him it's so what it says there he will destroy you o israel you are against me your helper he is like a mother bear who is he protecting he's protecting his honor He's protecting the good of his people. We in our sin are unleashing havoc and hell upon the people that God made. And God is saying, I will not have it. That for there to be justice in the universe, there needs to be a consequence. And I am the one who in my holiness will be be wrathful towards those who are in sin. It is the necessary response when you're seeking to, to stop the harm that will come to people you love. We are all wrathful when there's someone who threatens the one that we love. And so what God is saying here is, hey, hey Israelites, the biggest problem you have, right, to the promises, the good that I'm gonna bring in your life is me. Because you're turning your back on me. You're offending me. You're in sin. And there is anger, a holy anger that needs to be expressed. So when we think of all of these obstacles that are depicted here in the text, you can understand why the people at the time may not have seen this verse 14 as just a shining beacon of hope. They probably would have been saying, like, how how is how is this even going to happen, right? How how with all of this in the way, God, how can you possibly uh, help us? Is death all there is? Maybe that's just it. If, if if we're part of the problem, and if God, you're part of the problem in terms of how we ever going to get to know you and, and experience all your blessing in light of our sin, what what hope is there? Well, the kind of think, the best way to think of this passage then, uh, is another scene of a movie. Now, I know what you're thinking. I do read books sometimes. I just haven't recently, but um, but the movie that I thought of. Is uh, the perfect storm, you remember that movie with uh, this is like a while ago, when George Clooney plays a, a sword boat fishing captain, and there 's this boat, the Andrea gale that 's caught off the coast of the Atlantic, and they fill their i mean they 're catching all these swordfish they 're full of fish, hundreds of thousands of dollars of fish, but their ice machine breaks, and so they decide to sail back towards the land but there's these storms brewing in fact there's a hurricane to the south and another storm to the north and it comes together and the whole last half of the movie is this little fishing boat just getting i mean getting trashed by this storm this this powerful storm and it's i mean it's amazing at the time the effects like the giant waves and everything you just see this is a true story these this crew was i mean it was ravaged by the storm but there's one scene i remember just near the end this is at a point where they are just exhausted where they've tried everything, the boat itself is in shambles, it's barely floating, and there's just, the whole time, there's these dark, billowing clouds, right? Pouring down rain, pouring down lightning, everything. But there's this moment where the clouds part, and and the captain looks up, and there's this, the sun peeks through, and it just envelops the boat in this warmth and this light, and you have this moment where you think, maybe it'll break, right? Maybe they'll sail into peaceful waters. Maybe maybe this isn't the end. But within, within a blink, the clouds fold back in and you just realize that it's the end for them. That's kind of how I see this passage. At least in the sense that there's so many dark, billowing clouds, one ray of light. The difference, of course, is that this is not the end. What this ray of light is telling us is that behind the clouds, there is a sun shining brightly and that there will come a day when the clouds actually do part, and the skies are clear, and that the people of God can bask under the Son of God himself, and the only way for that to happen is for God to remove those clouds, remove those obstacles. The beautiful thing about us and our position is we can see how that happened. Back then, it was pure faith. They just had to trust in the character of God. Somehow, some way, Lord, you would remove all of these things, and you would put your promises on us, for us we know. We know that there was one coming who would remove the obstacles and unleash the promises of God, and his name is Jesus. This is our third point, that Jesus, Jesus firstly removes the obstacles that are preventing the promises of God from being unleashed in our lives. And so what I want to do is just go through those obstacles I talked about in reverse order. Because the first main obstacle is the wrath of God. And, and what we see in Jesus is that he is the one who appeased the wrath of God on the cross. Here's Romans three twenty three: For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation uh, is a word, we don't use it ever, but it's so helpful. It, 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 it's something that is... Um, People who follow the Lord, we need to understand what what does it mean. It just means a a wrath-bearing sacrifice. Uh, In the Old Testament, they they knew what it meant because they had a sacrificial system. They would bring animals. The people would come and lay their hands on the animals by faith. They would transfer their sin onto that animal. That animal would be slaughtered, killed. The the wrath of God, in a sense, then atoned for. The death of that animal would take care of their sin for a time. But the problem, of course, is that they had to keep... Killing animals, that it was never enough. It was never satisfied until Jesus came, the spotless lamb. And on the cross, we see him bearing all of the wrath of God. The whole thing, all of the the mocking, the ridicule, the the, the beatings, the scourgings, the torture, the death itself, and even his separation from God on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of it is is the wrath literally being poured out on Christ that should be on us. And he took all of it. And by the end, it was finished. And what that means now is that God isn't angry with us anymore. I'm not sure if we actually believe that all the time. I think a lot of times as believers, we struggle, especially when there's, there's sin in our lives that we're struggling with. And we have this idea that God is still looking at us with a sense of disdain, a sense of frustration. It's hard to believe that all of his wrath has been satisfied, but that's exactly what we see, right? That God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood and we can receive it by faith, by believing in fact that Jesus died to satisfy that wrath and then rose to new life, showing us that he had conquered the grave. The obstacle of God's wrath has been removed. The promises of God can be unleashed in our lives, which means we can boldly step into the presence of God. I think sometimes we need to remind ourselves of that, that he isn't looking down on us as we're struggling through this life with a sense of like, man, if you just get it together, if you would just pick yourself up, if you would just stop being so foolish, then I would love you, not at all. Because of what Christ has done, we can enjoy the friendship of God, the love of God, Jesus has removed that obstacle. But not just the wrath of God. He's also removed the consequences of sin. Look at Romans 8, 1-3. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So the people back then, they were trying desperately to have some sense of God's blessing, right? They were trying to follow the Ten Commandments, do them perfectly, and they never could, right? The law, weakened by the flesh, it could not actually bring all the blessings of God into the lives of his people. And so the consequences of sin were always present. They were always struggling with them. They could not get out from underneath them. But now, Jesus, because he has sacrificed himself on the cross, he has taken all the consequences, and because he lived a life of perfection, following the commands perfectly. When we trust in him, the, the, the beautiful gospel exchange is one that now we have the righteousness of Christ. And so we are not condemned. I think to some of us that we still feel condemned. We still feel guilty. We still feel separated from God. Maybe it's because there's people in our lives who have been condemning towards us who have never really forgiven us. And so maybe it's hard for us to forgive ourselves. But it's clear that in Christ, there's no condemnation. There's no guilt. There's just the warm embrace of a loving father who who, uh, forgets our sin. Uh, Even though it said he stores up our sin, in Christ, it's like they aren't there at all. And we can enjoy communion with him so the wrath of God is appeased. The consequences of sin is removed. And, and the third thing, the third amazing thing that, that Jesus was able to do is that he was able to give us a new heart and a new spirit. Look at 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for his salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice all of the blessings, but notice also how they happen. God is the one who does it. He has caused us to be born again. Think of the image of Israel, right? Resisting their birth, clinging to the birth canal, saying, no, I don't want to be born. The stubbornness, the foolishness. And the hopelessness that comes with that. If, that's, if we have to be smart enough and wise enough and good enough to actually come to faith, it's never going to happen. But God says here that that's actually, he overcomes our stubbornness. In Ezekiel, he promises that he will fill his people with a new spirit and a heart that is actually alive. And it happens by the power of the Spirit of God, not because of us. And the great thing about this is that we're... Our salvation is not reliant upon us. Not only in the beginning, but for our whole lives. Verse 5 says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It doesn't mean that we have to wait till the end to know that we're saved. What it's saying is that we come to faith by his grace, by his power, We, we respond, we are saved, but then we work out that salvation. How? By God's power. He's the one who guards us. He's the one who keeps us. For those of us who are feeling discouraged, right, like, I, like how, how am I going to be able to follow the ways of God if, if my faith is so weak, if, if the pull of sin is so great? That this is what we need to understand, that the promises of God are not dependent upon us that it's God who overcomes our stubbornness, who gives us a new heart, and that the Spirit of God is the one who works to to, to slowly, persistently convict us of sin, grow us in character, grow us in righteousness, so that we would actually be able to receive all the blessings, all the promises. So Jesus, he does everything necessary so that the floodgates of heaven would be open. He removes all of the obstacles, which means... Jesus fulfills all the promises of God. And we can see this uh, because of the way that verse 14 is used in the New Testament. Okay, so verse 14 in our text, right? Uh, o death, where are your plagues? O shield, where is your sting? That people would have to say, well, it's, they're kind of everywhere. We see death everywhere. We see hell everywhere in a sense. But then we go to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says it this way. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The answer to that is very different, because at that point, Jesus has already come. Look at verse 56. The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has fulfilled all the promises of God. He's taken all the wrath upon himself. He's been resurrected, and now, now when we think of death, we don't think of an oppressive enemy. When we think of sin, we don't think of something that is like unable for us to overcome. We think, yes, Jesus yes, everything is fulfilled in you, in my life, in the life of those I love. You are the one who brings the victory. And because we are in him, we we can have the same victory. So I have two questions in, in light of what we see here in our text. First question is this. Do you have the sense that there are too many obstacles in your life for you to experience the promises of God. Like when you think of God, when you think of what he wants for you, when you see in the Bible all this talk of the peace, of the joy, of, of the life, all these things, but then you look at your life, and you think, God, I, I just don't see how those two are gonna come together. When I think of my history, when I think of the struggles that I have, when I think of just the circumstances, God, I. It just seems like there's too many obstacles. And can you not see that that is a continuation of the foolishness and the stubbornness and the pride that has plagued us as human beings? Can we, can we not see the glory of Christ who has, who has wiped all the obstacles away and that what's really needed for us is not that we figure things out on our own, not that we kind of get our act together, but simply that we come before the Lord on our knees and say, thank you, Jesus, Thank you that in you, all the promises are true. Thank you that you've wiped everything clean, including my own sin. And that all that is really needed is for me to to step forward in faith day by day, trusting that you will work. And the second question I have is are you foolishly resisting the new life that God wants to birth in you? Like that picture of that unborn child it could, it could be that you're someone who just hasn't come to faith. And maybe you've felt a sense of leading, maybe you've, you've had some interest, but there's been something holding you back. Can you see that that's really a choice between death and life? But it could also be, for those of us who know the Lord, that there is some sense of renewal, spiritual renewal, that God is wanting to do, and yet we're resisting. That we just are more comfortable where we are. We, we, we don't know what it's going to be like to step out in faith. It feels scary. Again, can we not see that we're simply hindering everything that God wants for us? I'm gonna pray that we would have insight and clarity and that we'd be able to respond in faith. And we'll close. Heavenly Father, it's so clear that, that we as a people are in need of your help. It's so clear that left to our own devices, we will remain stubborn and prideful and foolish and lost. And so we thank you. We thank you for the the clarity to to show us the reality of our own situation in our sin, the reality of our own hearts, but also to have that, that beacon of light, even though it is somewhat dim here in this text, but it's connected to a light that burns bright, the light of Christ. And I pray for that, Lord Jesus. I pray your light would shine brightly in our lives. I pray that each one of us would have the the faith, have the humility to get on our knees and and to recognize that everything we have is because of you, that everything that we need is found in you. And Lord, that as we respond to you simply as children, as seeking the help that comes from you, that we will be blessed. More than that, all the promises of God will be unleashed on our lives. God, I pray that for us. I pray new spiritual life for those of us who are dead and for a renewal for those of us who have come to a dry place. Please, Lord God, in your mercy and grace, may we know you more. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.